Welcome back, everybody, to a, uh, another session of Ask the Breadwinner. We've had Tony on the show on the YouTube channel a couple times. Uh, today, we're going to talk to Ira Ryan, the other half of Breadwinner, and see how his thoughts are different and how they collaborate, and then get into your uh, very specific frame nerdy question. So, uh, Ira, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's it's good to be here. So I'm I'm really curious when you guys first uh, started working together as breadwinner, how did the division of labor go? Uh, were one of you like you know, hey, I'm totally stoked on mitering. You do all the the filing, or do you, do you guys do the same task but kind of just rotate? Um, there was a lot of trial and error as far as how we how we did it. Um, when we when we started, um, Tony and I both had separate but similar construction styles and construction methods. And we both, because we were both doing 100% of the work individually, um, we both felt pretty confident to to do all of the tasks. So it was it was interesting. We tried a bunch of different combinations before we figured it out. When we started, it was really I had a bunch of the equipment at my garage, and then a bunch of tools and and machines, and then Tony had a similar setup in his shop, um, and our shops were close to each other but it, we would still like i would like raise the the dropouts and the chain stays at at my shop and then bring them all over to tony's house and then we'd you know tack them to the bottom brackets and the mainframes and then i'd take them back over to my house and do the stays so it was very inefficient um and looking back i mean it's 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 painful to think about how we did it that way right um but it was i don't know we it was a lot of trial by fire and or, or trial and error have sort of formed a very organic system for our, our own individual strengths and what we like to do um, on the construction side. Um, and kind of the same thing for the business, the, uh, you know, which is a lot, a lot less glamorous, but just as almost more important than building a really nice bicycle is being able to run an efficient and sustainable business. Um, so we've kind of gravitated to our separate roles um, on that side of things. Whose idea was it uh, to come to, to do the uh, coffee shop? It was both, like we both kind of had the idea at the same uh, similar time. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've been friends for a, a very, very long time. So it was, I don't know, we are kind of constantly throwing ideas off of each other and we're both really into motorcycles, mm -hmm. and uh, there were a lot of very successful, well, um, successful in the in the branding side of things. Uh, maybe you know it's hard to know if the businesses were successful, but there were a lot of really cool motorcycle boutique slash coffee shops slash bars. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even even on the bicycle side of things, you know, mm -hmm. opening up a bike shop and having a bar or a, or a cafe attached is is not unheard of. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was like, we definitely both recognize and, and see the potential for there to be like a cultural touch point for what we do. And so it, I don't know, it just kind of made sense to have a space that was, um, you know, cafe and culture related, um, connected to the bike, sh to the, the frame building shop. And I think a lot of it is also, there's a, a lot of frame builders out there that have this, you know, kind of the the stereotypical idea you have of a frame builder is you know one person toiling away in their shop in their garage and you know it's like you never get to see that you never get to really experience it so it sort of it creates this you know kind of uh interest behind it and so we really wanted to open it up and be bare bare what we do to the world um so it was a it was a nice it 
just kind of made sense to open up a cafe. Yeah, and that's one thing I really appreciate about you guys, because like you, you said, with like there's this mystique of the the solo frame builder artisan working in in a cave. They can't be disturbed. Yeah, um, you know, so to to kind of take away that black box a little bit and show, you know, you guys are approachable. You can see the inner workings, and it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be so like kind of mysterious and and unapproachable. Yeah, we it's I think it's. It's kind of a new, a new, well, not new anymore, but we saw a big transition right around the time when we started Breadwinner. Um, there were a lot of frame builders in Portland and a lot of frame building in, in the States. And, and it was just, there was a lot of competition and it was, uh, and I think everybody sort of hanging their hat on this black magic mysticism side of things. It, it's not... I mean, it's it's cool, but it's not very inclusive. And we just kind of saw it as it only could get the it could only get the brand and the business so far. So we really wanted to open it up, and and I think having a cafe and a space for for anybody to come in and and see what we do and then enjoy a you know a really good cup of coffee and a, some really good food was I don't know it all we we sort of strive for this very high quality throughout everything we do, whether that's on the cafe side or the, um, or the bike side. And so there's a lot of sort of themes that kind of run throughout the whole business or well, all of both of the businesses. Yeah. I also think it's a, it's a good response to kind of the expectation of the consumer these days. You know, it used to be like the consumer yeah. was used to, okay, there's a corporate face they're kind of untouchable, but you know, with social media, it's like we, we demand kind of some kind of personality or interaction from, mm -hmm. from the, the products that we buy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that connectivity is really, is really important. And that's, um, yeah, it, you know, it, I think people are kind of constantly looking for this like authentic, honest representation of, you know, a brand or a, or a company. And that's something that I feel like frame builders intrinsically have, I mean, it kind of, it's kind of baked into what we do a little bit, but, um, but it's, I don't know. It's also it's it's finding that balancing point between having a, a sustainable, growing business and you know doing what you love and making sure that everybody can, can kind of see the the craftsmanship and the the hard work that goes into everything we make. All right. So has um as kind of the the gambit with the the cafe has it met expectations, succeeded, or how's it panning out so far? Well, it's um it's it's really good. I think. There's definitely a lot of uh, interest and, um, yeah, people in the community really like it and especially people that are coming to visit. Um, it's, it's really great. It's a, it's a new business for us and either, you know, we're, we don't have any experience working in restaurants or cafes. So it's been a little bit of a, uh, it's been interesting just seeing like how, you know, how a different business functions. Uh, but it's, it's been good. It's still, you know, typical cafe timeline to sort of get into the black is you know three to five years and we're not we're not quite there yet but we have some really great momentum and you know it's just i kind of see everything as a as a problem to solve so it's not a, it's not an unconquerable challenge um and it, it definitely dovetails really well with what we do on the bike side of things so i think it's it's really it's really great um, it's kind of an anchor for the the sort of hub of businesses we have going on in the under our roof right now. I'm kind of curious. So you guys were had your own frame building businesses uh, before. Are there any kind of 
like big ideological uh, frame building uh, differences that you guys have? And then how do you kind of come to a compromise? They're not unconquerable differences. Uh, I mean, like I said, we're our frame building methods were very similar. Um, definitely our interests, our personal interests and in, like the styles of bikes that we would build and, and uh, the types of riding that we, that Tony and I both like to do were, were a little different. Um, but there's, like anything, there's a lot of overlap with that. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, my my primary, my the bikes that I would build and the bikes that I was most excited about as a frame builder um, when I was building Ira Ryan cycles were mostly lugged bikes. Um, and that was really, I don't know, very, very old school road. Um, road and cyclocross is kind of my, those are my passions and my, my background. Um, and Tony was coming at it from more from a mountain biker, 29er, single speed sort of um, sort of vein, and most of most of his construction, uh, most of his bikes frames that he built were fillet raised. So it was, um, you know, it, it kind of it dovetailed really well together. Um, we both had a similar style and a similar aesthetic for like what we appreciated, but we also had different, you know, different bikes that we personally liked. So um, it made for I think when we came together and started Breadwinner, we both had a common vision for how to replicate a lot of those designs um, in a more efficient way, um, and still sort of keep the key elements that make that you know key elements that make a road bike special. Keep those and keep the key elements that make a mountain bike special. Um, and and yeah, it was it was it's been a really really cool collaborative process um, through the. So for a bike like the G-Road, which is kind of like a mishmash of, you know, some, I guess, like mountain biking elements and road elements and cross elements, like how did, how did you guys come to a consensus on the final geometries? The geometry is a little bit, I mean, it's, it's, we can tweak it based on different, uh, different riders and what they're looking for and like where they're going to carry weight and whether they're using it, you know, there's, there's so many different variables that kind of dictate the, the real finer points of the geometry. Um, but in general... I mean, it, it, it made sense to build it, um, I don't know, it kind of, it's just like an evolution of where bikes were headed, you know, it's when we both started Breadwinner, gravel bikes were out there, but they weren't as prolific as they are now, um, but it was essentially just kind of a, like a modified cyclocross bike. Um, so when we launched the B-Road, it was very, it just made sense to, you know, make some, make some more make some more stability tweaks to it, to the geometry, like lower the bottom bracket, make it a little bit more, um, a little bit more road friendly. And that was a, definitely a popular. Um, so then the G road is kind of like the next step in that evolution. You know, people want wider and wider tires and they want, you know, you're using bikes for more bike packing adventure stuff. So having all of the features to make it, you know, a little bit more capable for, um, more weight, more racks, um, things like that. It just, it all checks off all the boxes. Um, style wise, uh, you know, Tony was pretty adamant about wanting the, 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 the aesthetic of the frame to be a little bit more like an old mountain bike. So a little bit more slope to the top tube, get the seats a little lower. Um, uh, you know, we built a handful of those bikes with, uh, dropper posts, um, which kind of adds to that, you know, fun, shreddy mountain bike kind of style. Um, and then from my perspective, I still want it to ride you know, we both want it to ride great on the road, but my, I'm always thinking like, it needs to be lightweight. It needs to be performance oriented. Like how do you balance out that durability and the off-road fun with 
something that's going to be light and nimble. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, so we, we kind of work together on that. Well, let's jump into uh, some kind of uh, nerdy frame questions. So when, when I interviewed uh, Tony, he had a preference for uh, bottom, uh, like kind of a lower bottom bracket. And he said that you had a preference for kind of a slightly higher bottom bracket. How does bottom bracket height drop affect um, you know, just the overall ride quality in your, in your opinion? I definitely think that there's a sweet spot in there. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like anything, it can be measured on a spectrum. I always think about it kind of as a, you know, if you draw a, you know, if you draw a, a line between the front and the rear axle, and then you drop the bottom bracket from there, and you think about how that that bottom bracket drop is essentially pivoting on the axle. Um, I don't know if that makes sense visually, but um, it's essentially, you know, the 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 lower the bottom bracket drop, the more the more energy, the the more it swings from side to side a little bit. Um, so that lower bottom bracket, it kind of, it's going to make a bike feel, you know, like you're a little bit more planted, your center of gravity is slightly lower. And it's, it's amazing to me how just a couple of millimeters makes a pretty big difference in how a bike feels and rides. Um, so the difference between a road bike that has, you know, a, or a, actually I guess our cyclocross bike and our mountain bikes kind of have a little bit higher bottom bracket than anything else. Um, but the cyclocross bike is a good example. So it has a 68 millimeter bottom bracket drop. And that is essentially, you know, your corner, you're pedaling through corners. You want the bike to feel kind of like really light and springy. Um, it's less about feeling stable and planted on a, on a long descent and more about being able to, you know, bunny hop quickly and have that agility. So by bracing the bottom bracket, you're, it's, the bike is definitely going to like pop over stuff a little bit easier. Um, and you're going to have a little bit more pedaling clearance. Um, the bottom bracket you know, it's going to make the bike feel a little bit more planted. It's going to, you're going to feel like you're sort of in the bike as opposed to on top of it as much. Um, that's kind of, I feel like that's probably the best way to describe it. Um, but then you can also, you know, it can be too low. You know, you can't have a bike with a really low bottom racket and it's, the chain stays are a little bit longer. Um, and it's just going to, going to probably ride a little bit more like a Cadillac, but it's not going to have that sort of get up and go when you really want to like, have that that snap to it um so that's why our bottom bracket drop on our on our g road is right around 72 millimeters um and that that's one of the consistent things with our geometry that doesn't change much um that that and the chainstay length are, are pretty much set and we feel pretty strongly that those are definitely optimized for that sweet spot between having something that feels stable and planted but also has that kind of a little bit of to it when you really want to when you when you're on a you know a nice fast section of road and you kind of want to feel like you're carving it up a little bit for for let's say like a some for someone that likes to climb standing like what would you suggest a lower or higher bottom bracket i guess it kind of depends on if you're a masher or a, a spinner um yeah i would i would i you know i might raise it up just a hair but not not a lot because i feel you know if you go up you have to go down and if, you know, if you have a higher bottom bracket and you're making a, a very specific climbing, you know, climbing specific bike, um, it's, it's going to be way less confidence inspiring on the downside. So, um, I always think about, I always think about that. So, yeah. So I, I made a video recently on our uh, YouTube channel, um, kind of comparing uh, touring bike geometry and the current gravel bike geometry. 
And, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, touring bikes have longer chainstay, you know, gravel bikes are more performance oriented ones tend to be shorter. So therefore, uh, you know, they'll help you accelerate more. I mean, I've always taken that at face value. And then someone asked, well, is that actually true? Can you, you know, is there like a quantifiable way to measure chainstay length and, you know, uh, a bike in terms of acceleration or overall speed? Uh, I mean, it feels like it when you hop on it, but have you seen any studies or, and is there any kind of empirical data for that? Um, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I've, I've it's and there's also so many variables with that. I mean, you kind of to to do a a, a a proper test in a scientific with the scientific method. I mean, you, know, you would have to have essentially two identical bikes with the identical parts and you know everything, um, even right down to the tube set you use, and then a uh, paint color. You know, you could probably have two different bikes paint a color and you wouldn't notice a difference, but um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that there's a big difference in chainstay length per se. I mean, a shorter chainstay length, um, I guess the way I think about it, um, I tend to be a little, <laughs> I tend to, sometimes I can be a little woo-woo about like, my my attitude towards frame design. You know, the chainstay length is, is an aspect of the wheelbase, um, and there are definitely a lot of bikes out there that have really long front ends and really short chainstays, and they're going to ride a lot differently than something that's a little bit more balanced. Um, so, I mean, having a shorter wheelbase is definitely going to make the bike feel a little snappier, um, but you're also going to be giving up some stability with that. So, again, it's it's all about that, that kind of sweet spot. Um, and, you know, that's a big part of the reason why we go with the designs and the, the way that we've been building bikes as Breadwinner is we both Tony and I have a lot of experience building various types of bikes, touring bikes and cross bikes and, you know, bikes that were gravel bikes before gravel bikes really existed. Um, and, you know, we kind of got to the point where there was, there was like a, we both realized that there was like a sweet spot for like how, you know, it doesn't make sense to redesign every bike from a blank slate. Um, so we just kind of came up with some, some kind of formulaic approaches to the geometry and the design. Um, and you know, they're all, again, you know, we can, we can, we still build everything custom. So we're adjusting the, you know, the fit and the, the front end of the bike and some of the geometry, like even the, the seat tube angle and the head tube angle can change dramatically based on, you know, from one bike to another and how somebody rides. But, um, mm -hmm. so yeah. what's, what's your preference for, um, chainstay length on, on, a, on a gravel bike? Um, it's 430 millimeters. And that tends to be the right balance for, you know, tire size and running fenders um, and also just having it kind of have it be that that good spot for performance and snappiness without being extra long. Anything longer than 430 and I feel like you start to, it just starts to get a little whippy. So what are kind of the, the, the considerations for uh, a shorter rider when you're when you're building a frame? I think the two the two biggest considerations for a shorter rider right off the top of my head would be standover height, um, and it kind of depends on the style of bike. Um, in general, standover height and toe overlap um, are probably the two biggest concerns, especially on a bike like a G-Road where, you know, you're going to have bigger tires and bigger fenders. Um, that just kind of takes up more of that, the front center um, space, the dist distance between the front axle and the pedals. Um, so having a little bit more room, uh, 
you know, is is really key or making sure that it's as far away as possible. Um, those are the biggest considerations. And then I guess after that, um, we actually just recently built a, a mountain bike, a, a 27.5 bike for a rider who I think she's like 5'3". Um, it's very, very short. And it was a pretty... It was a pretty tricky problem to try to get all to work all the pieces together. Um, we ended up going to the shorter fork just to get the front end lower, and then we also uh, ended up using a smaller tube set, so a slightly smaller diameter, um, so the bike is going to ride a little bit more like how we intended it to. Um, so by changing the tube set, which we do that pretty frequently on really small bikes or really large bikes, we'll actually bump up the size in the tube set um, on the really large bikes just to give it a little bit more rigidity um, so that, that there's there's less flex in the frame. So uh, related to that, this is a theory I've heard. Um, I don't have, you know, any frame building experience, but I like to nerd out, is that um, let's say, you know, mass production bike, uh, mass production gravel bike, uh, they tend to be optimized in the medium to larger sizes. And once they get smaller, the riding gets compromised. Generally, at least from what I've heard, is like the head tube angle has to change so there's not toe overlap. But mm -hmm. uh, because production bikes tend to have as just a, a single fork offset, like the you know you end up having like a different riding bike from the smaller size to the medium to larger ones. Yeah, I it, that's definitely um, the the both ends of the fitting spectrum, um, and especially I feel like the lower end or the smaller sizes um, are definitely compromised a little bit more in in the the ride quality um that i feel like that's something that bigger you know huge huge bike companies and huge bike manufacturers um compromise on for sure is make, making sure that it's you know they're they're choosing safety over um you know by making sure that the bike is safe and you're not going to clip your toe um but they're compromising the ride when you have a custom fork built, can you specify the offset so it doesn't compromise the ride field too much? Um, yeah, yeah, we and we we do that, um, especially on the G road with the Eigelhart forks that Christopher builds for us. Um, we can definitely specify like a shorter, you know, a, either a different rake or a shorter axle to crown to sort of get the fine-tune the front end a little bit um yeah so here's another question that someone asked um what uh, affects the ride feel the most would it be the geometry or or the frame materials i think between those two i'd say geometry yeah um frame materials are are not are not a small part of that um but yeah i think the geometry is going to be the thing that's probably a little bit more noticeable the the frame materials themselves are a little more nuanced um but it's it's definitely something we we take into consideration. We really we feel pretty strongly about the Columbus um, the Columbus tubes that we use. We did a bunch of research and you know just our experience with knowing what's out there and by picking the the G road specifically because that's kind of seems like what we keep talking about. Um, the G road uses a uh, Columbus Life and Spirit tubing on the front end, which is the same tube set that we use on our. Um, on our cyclocross race bikes for our racing team. Um, so they're very lightweight, very performance oriented. Um, uh, but they, I don't know, they seem to strike the right balance between that lightweight, but but feeling uh, stable and, and solid. Um, I mean, just has a, has a really nice balance to the ride feel. Um, it's stiff, but has a little bit of flex to it. So it's not, 
it doesn't beat you up over a long period of time. Um, but the the steel fork helps a lot with that too. Um, it's very lightweight, and it just I don't know. I feel like that that's definitely part of the magic combination on the G Road. And then you add some bigger tires, and I don't know. It's just the it's the sum of all the parts that kind of end up that way. But the geometry um, is a I think that's really huge. Like having that trail, that balance between the head tube angle, fork rake, and the trail number is is kind of key. If if there was like a like a geometry t- tweak that would affect like the you know, that you would change and someone would notice the most, what would it be? Would it be a change the length or something in the front end? Um, I feel like the front end is probably going to be a little bit more noticeable. Chainstay link, you would probably notice a little bit. I, I feel like that relationship between chainstay length and bottom bracket drop is really, really is really key. But I, I think like the the first noticeable thing you get on is the steering. You know, you're, you're just like riding around a parking lot. You're you're not going to be going fast enough to notice the the chainstay length, but you're gonna you're gonna notice like how the front end feels. So let's talk um, touring bikes for a second. There's been kind of a, a vogue. Uh, in touring to just go front loading and kind of, you know, do a, a hybrid, you know, bike packing, you know, small front pannier, um, yeah. setup. how, when, when designing bikes specifically for front loading, what, like, what are the optimizations? What are the things that you, you changed it? So that would be the most ideal kind of way that to, to carry stuff. I think the first question that I would ask is if they, if the person would want to have the weight be up high, like above the wheel, or if they're going to primarily use low riders or, you know, front panniers, um, which are, I mean, are going to feel more stable just because they're right around the axle of the front wheel. Um, and they're definitely lower. So your, your center of gravity is a little lower. Yeah, that would be the first thing I would ask. Um, cause that's, I feel like that is going to affect that, that trail number a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, and I tend to I tend to gravitate more towards trail numbers in the like high 40s, low 50s. Um, I know that there's a lot of people that really like that like mid mid to low 40 number. Um, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not I'm not as much of a like bicycle quarter leg Kool Aid drinker. I yeah. guess. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean that's for front front loading touring. I would definitely ask if they, you know, where they want to carry the weight. Cause that's, I think going to dictate a little bit of it. Well, let's, let's, um, let's assume they're going to do a uh, uh, front low rider. So painters fairly, fairly low on the, on the wheel. I would probably do a little bit, um, like a 72 and a half degree head tube angle with like a, maybe a 55 millimeter rake. It's going to be in that like high forties, low fifties trail range. Um, the benefit of the front weight is you, because you're, as you get out of the saddle and you're climbing, you're sort of, um, the front, the front end is sort of, uh, diving back and forth a little bit. And so you don't notice it as much. It's not attached to the frame the same way that it is on a rear rack. So you're you just, don't, you just don't notice it as much. I don't know exactly. I scientifically, I don't know what it is. Um, but it's just not, you know, it's not directly connected to the frame. Um, just kind of, it just kind of moves around the axle. Um, and the other part of that is, you know, is going back to the bottom bracket drop as you're, you know, if you draw a line, you draw, you know, a line between the two axles, everything below the axle is like swinging out. Mm-hmm. And so if you have that like swinging out balanced with the, with the weight on top, which is, I mean, essentially if a good, if you have your setup right, your weight is low. And so it, it has that same stability of like feeling planted without mm-hmm. feeling 
you're top heavy at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know like I've I've ridden um, you know the same bike loaded different ways, you know, uh, low in the front or in the rear. And for me, part of it is like um, if you have a lot of load up high in the rear, I can actually feel like the the rear end get a little whippy. Oh yeah. And yeah. then when it's low in the front, it's almost like pushing a a, a shopping cart <laughs> rather than like this big thing wagging behind you. And that's, I mean, from an experience standpoint, that's one of the fun things about bike touring is you can kind of, you know, figure it out over a series of days. You know, you sort of like load your load your stuff in different spots and you kind of figure out like what's the best balance for how you ride. So, you know, gravel bikes tend to be really controversial on our YouTube channel, <laughs> which Everybody is weird. Running, what pressure? Yeah. <laughs> it's people get like really like. Uh, worked up over over uh, the gravel bike trend and, and depending on which type of cycling they're coming from like mountain bikers will say well those are just you know 90s cross-country uh you know, mountain bikes and then on the other side people are just saying well like those are just slacker you know cross bikes i don't know what do you think is it like a is it a marketing trend or is it actually unique enough of a bike that it deserves its own kind of name and, and category I don't know. My, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to like pull back a little bit here and kind of look at everything from a, a, like a little bit more bird's eye view. I, I don't know. I feel like I've been riding for a long, a very long time. And I definitely have the experience riding gravel bikes um, versus road bikes versus cyclocross bikes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It's just funny. It's like, can't we all just get along <laughs> that we all, Riding bikes. I mean, it's like you can you can totally get into the weeds and get all up uptight about like differences between one and the other. But like, we all you know, it, I feel like everybody everybody just likes to ride bikes. It's, right. From a from a commercial standpoint, there is definitely there are definitely bikes that you know the the big companies want to make it seem like they have like the best gravel bike because mm -hmm. um, it's just something it's just something new to sell. But. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess from my perspective, I think uh, like a really good gravel bike um, is essentially going to be like just a slightly slacker, um, more like a road bike with just a little bit more stability. So um, our gravel bike, our B road has the same bottom bracket drop that our Lolo does. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a 72 millimeter bottom bracket drop and 70 or 40, 73 millimeter chance uh, seven, 43 centimeter chainstays. Um, so it's similar to the, to the G road. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, again, I feel like it just kind of strikes the balance between having to be sporty, but not, you know, not, not too cush. Um, and then, uh, geometry wise beyond that, um, you know, the geometry is, is pretty similar to our Lolo. Um, you know, it'll be seven, 72 and a half to 73 head tube angle. It really depends on the style, on the, the experience of the person riding it. Um, I mean, somebody that is arguing that gravel bikes are just old, old road bikes. Um, it's like, they're probably coming at it from a more road bike perspective and they're going to want a slightly steeper head tube angle, um, because that's what they're used to. Yeah. I, I guess from my perspective, a, a gravel bike is, essentially a little bit more it's a road bike that's a little bit more stable but has room for bigger tires and other options for you know how either luggage or or extra water bottles things like that yeah it's a i think it's a fascinating category that's that you know to watch it develop because it's it's interpreted in so many ways by different brands 
you know, like there's like, I feel like there's a a schism between, you know, gravel performance and gravel adventure. And, you know, it's, it's almost, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to just say a gravel bike is this one kind of bike anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even right down to the, um, the, the endurance road category, you know, those, those bikes are, you know, also have, you know, some people could argue that those are more gravel bikes, you know, it's just gravel bikes with smaller tires, um, as far as like the fit and the, the performance. Cool. Well, I've got, I think one more, uh, question, question. This is kind of, I don't know if you might have any insight into this. Um, but we live in a, in a time when you can get a full carbon, uh, you know, bicycle for, you know, under 2k, but equivalent production steel bikes, they, they always seem to be made with like, you know, lead pipes. Like, why can't, why is it difficult for the bike industry to create uh, steel bikes in mass that, that are a little, that, that are a little bit more lively? Is it because material costs or is it skill uh, at that scale? I think it's um, from a, from a manufacturing standpoint. um, And I've, I've never worked in a, in a giant factory, but I've been in the bike industry long enough to, if you want to make something really light and really performance oriented the 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 quality of the materials that you start with need to be much higher um that just it it's just a manufacturing problem you know those materials are going to cost more and then they're also going to be way harder to produce in a in a reliable way um i mean we like i said we use columbus tubing and it's it's hands down it's the highest quality tubing um that, that we've that i've experienced that i've worked with um for steel um, and they also have a really broad range for wall thicknesses and um, tubing lengths and butt lengths. And so we can, we've really figured out what works well for the bikes that we build and being able to integrate that. Um, from a large scale manufacturing you know, pr- perspective, it's probably really hard for, uh, it would cost a lot more money for Surly or Soma or you know, any of those you know, bigger steel manufacturing companies to get the level of the level of tubing quality that they would need to make it. Um, and then, you know, we don't, it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while we have a tube that is, you know, it's, it has a little ripple in it or it has a, you know, there's like a, a weird, a weird dent or a weird, you know, manufacturing defect basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't, if you're, you know I mean? I, the person who's welding a, a bike in Asia for one of the bigger steel brands is not gonna, they're not gonna care, you know, it's gonna weld it in there and then it turns into a warranty issue. And so it's, it, it's really just comes down. The materials are more expensive because they're higher quality. So I think that that's, that's really hard. And then those other companies also have to have, um, you know, they're designing bikes to fit the broadest range of people. So that's, they typically have lower standover heights so that they fit a wider range of, of, of person, of inseams. They're, uh, you know, they're just, they're mass produced. So, um, there's nothing wrong with that. My perspective around steel bikes is, you know, somebody that's riding a Surly today and loves it, you know, ride that for five or 10 years and, and, or maybe even less. And when they're, they, really figured out the what they like and what they dislike about it then then maybe they'll be like okay i'm ready for a bike that's that's built specifically 
Yeah, I feel like that's kind of where I'm at because there's actually you know a lot a couple uh, surly bikes that um, you know we reviewed last year that I liked how it handled. I liked the geometry, but it was just it was really the material that kind of bummed me out. It's like mm-hmm. you know I'd always be questioning you know if this was made with like a little bit lighter material, a little bit springier, a little bit more interesting. Yeah, this mm-hmm. would be such a rad ride, but you're just not going to see that like in a, a production bike anytime soon. It seems like no, it's it just I think it just it would limit the. I mean, it would it would hurt their bottom line too much you know it it would make it really hard and from a from a design process design perspective it's also you have to take into account so many more factors when you're building bikes like that and Mm -hmm. it's just it's not it's that's not the business model that those companies are designed around uh well thanks for uh being on another episode of ask breadwinner (laughs) yeah I'm actually, uh, uh, we're going to be in Portland in uh, a couple weeks. I might stop by the shop. Maybe we can, you know, make another video this time with both of you or something. We'll see. Yeah, that would be, that would be fantastic. We'll do, we'll do a, li- a live, live version if I can figure out the technology. <laughs> I mean, I feel like when I was scrambling this morning to figure out the, the Skype stuff, I'm all like, my laptop's really old and like, I don't know, it's just, I need a new computer, <laughs> but it's kind of fitting because I'm the one who also like rides with down tube shifters all the time and right like i it's <laughs> that's punk rock <laughs> that's how i like to pitch it yeah you know? so the audio only skype call is so punk right yeah <laughs> this is gonna be available only on cassette tapes <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome I I would seriously, I would, it would be pretty awesome to have like a breadwinner playlist. We could could make some, we could make some mixtapes. Nice. Uh, Well, cool. Well, thanks for uh, being on our YouTube channel. And uh, if you guys enjoyed uh, this video slash podcast, let us know. Maybe we'll do another one, do a follow up when uh, I'm in Portland. And uh, as always, uh, keep the supple side down.